If you really take as fact that 20 to 40% of Americans, working Americans don't have a PCP, that you know millions of us live in health professional shortage areas, the moment that you have your innovation start in a clinic, right off the bat, you've lost 20, 30, 40% of the population. So from an equity perspective, distributed becomes an imperative. That's Dr. Shantanu Nundi, Chief Medical Officer of Accolade. He's here talking with Oliver Wyman partner Tom Robinson about his perspective on the industry post-COVID-19, including how healthcare has changed, what improvements will stick, and the role employers will play to move healthcare forward. The Oliver Wyman Health Podcast is brought to you by the global management consulting firm Oliver Wyman. For more insights on the business of transforming healthcare, visit our online publication, health.oliverwyman.com. On behalf of everyone who made this episode possible, we hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Oliver Wyman Health Podcast. I'm Tom Robinson. I'm a partner with Oliver Wyman's Health and Life Sciences Practice. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Shantanu Nandi, currently the Chief Medical Officer of Accolade. Before Accolade, Shantanu was a health specialist with the World Bank and drove clinical innovation at Evolent. His work has been recognized by the WHO and the MacArthur Foundation and has been in everything from the Wall Street Journal to Rolling Stone magazine. He's a physician, an entrepreneur, a technologist, and a book author. He recently published his second book, Care After COVID, What the Pandemic Revealed is Broken in Healthcare and How to Reinvent It. We'll dive into that in this episode, and which I'm pleased to say has glowing reviews. Welcome, Dr. Nundi. It's great to have you on the show. It's a real pleasure, Tom. The book's obviously a lot about how things changed during COVID, what happened afterwards, how we can take some lessons there. What changed from your perspective and what's improved? A lot's changed. I think that's the main message, but but I'll start with how things have changed in my clinic because it's useful grounding. So I work at a small safety net clinic. We operate four or five different sites just outside of Washington, DC. So think of a you know, federally qualified health center, largely uninsured, largely immigrant population. And I'll tell you, like practicing medicine for the last 15 years or so, I really don't think it's changed materially up until this past year. And I'd sort of point to three really big changes. The first everyone's talking about is virtual care, right? So I had literally never done a virtual visit before the pandemic. Two weeks into it, I was 80% of my visits were virtual. And today, a year later, it's probably 40%. That's one huge change. I think the second really big change is that we've moved much more care into the community, right? So drive-through testing is something that we have. It's as simple as a white tent with a nurse and a megaphone standing outside of our clinic. Um, We've also partnered with a local church to vaccinate people for COVID. So that's the second really big change. And then the third is, is actually the way we're using data. So, you know, we've had electronic health record like most clinics for over 10 years, but we never really did anything with the data per se, not on a routine basis. But what we started doing during the pandemic is we would query when the vaccine was being rolled out and every week it was eligible for different people. Literally every week we would pull a different list of ages and comorbidities and start calling those patients proactively and saying, hey, you're now eligible for the vaccine. So those are three, I think, seismic changes that I think have relevance for COVID, but also I think really excitingly create new opportunities for us post-pandemic. And what's, I like your optimistic spin on it, because what's sort of depressing is the fact that we had to invent all of that at the time. Like we didn't have those lists. We didn't have them well stacked by risk status. We didn't know who to reach out to. We didn't know how to do it. 
what was your experience there? Was that a scramble figuring that out? Absolutely. <laughs> that was absolutely a scramble. But I, I think what surprised us, right, is that I think even doctors, even health professionals, we ourselves think that change is complicated and that we think, oh, well, I, I change, but those other doctors, they don't change, right? But I think what we showed ourselves time and time again is that that we can actually change things fast and we can change things at scale. And I think in some respects at a meta level, like that was another learning that we had is that change in healthcare is not impossible or that hard. It's actually very much possible. The trick will be how we can keep hold of some of these innovations, how we can industrialize them. Well, how do you think we can do that? Yeah, I mean, look, it's not one and done, right? I mean, clearly, you know, there is a big component around payment changes, right? We're still debating now telemedicine uh, regulatory change. Clearly, there's regulation as well. But I think the thing we don't talk that much about, um, which I think is just as important as leadership, right? Uh, a really good example of that is drive-through testing, right? So drive-through testing actually works extremely well in a fee-for-service environment because you actually churn visits way, way faster. There's no regulation needed. It's the same nurse doing the same thing that they would do inside the clinic as outside the clinic. And yet, right, for 30, 40 years, we have people that are sick and coughing and sneezing, wait in a waiting room so they can cough and sneeze on each other and the doctors and the nurses just so they can see us for a few minutes and get a test. And so I think sometimes we use regulation and payment as a sort of a scapegoat for the fact that we're just not leading the kind of change that we need to drive health forward. I love it. I was talking to Sachin Jane on the last episode about almost exactly that, this absence of leadership and how we need people to start to take the bold stances. I think that you're spot on on that. And, and you're also touching on some aspect of what you call decentralization in the book, this idea that why are we bringing everyone into the same place so they can infect one another? Let's do as much as we can at home. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, I'll start with a personal anecdote. You know, about a month ago, I have two girls. I have a seven or five-year-old and my older daughter on a Saturday night around 7 p.m. couldn't breathe. She was basically coughing every couple of seconds, initially for a few minutes. We tried the Vicks Raper Bub and we tried putting her in a hot shower to get steam. We tried to take her outside, right? And, and an hour in, we started to get really scared. And my wife and I are both physicians. We're staring at her and we're thinking, oh my God. It's now eight o'clock at night on a Saturday. And my point is that that's where healthcare starts. When you have two really scared parents staring at your child on a Saturday night, that's when healthcare starts. But that's actually not where the healthcare system starts today, right? We wait till they show up in the urgent care or into an ER. Then we make them feel bad for being in the ER and say, you're not supposed to be here. You don't really need, right? And so the idea of distributed care is this idea of truly meeting people where they are, that care should often start at home and in the community. It doesn't have to end there, but that's where it should start. That's really what that core idea is about. Well, first and most important, how did it end up? <laughs> She's doing okay. She's doing okay. You know, we ended up, uh, again, there's a whole story behind it, but we ended up getting her an inhaler, which she never had before that night. She did okay through the night and, you know, she may have sort of seasonal asthma at this point, but she's doing okay. Thanks for asking. Good. I'm, um, well, that's, I'm pleased to hear that. And yeah. as we think about a future then that is more distributed, mm -hmm. more mobile, more continuous, and we hear a lot of organizations starting to talk about these concepts, is it fair to ask which of those is most important or are they all so interrelated that it's hard to disentangle them? 
Yeah, I think they're all important. I mean, I think part of it gets to the lens that you're talking about, right? So for me, particularly because I take care of folks in inner city DC is the equity piece. Because what happens is you talk about leadership. One of the very common things people say, oh yeah, on one hand, they'll say, well, you know, people in these communities, they don't, there's not enough access to clinics. Uh, they don't trust the clinics, right? They'll say that and everyone will sort of nod their head. Then on the other side, they'll say, oh yeah, so we have a great idea. Let's expand clinic hours or let's train the doctors to be you know, more culturally sensitive or let's distribute the vaccine in the clinic. And you look at it and you're like, those are literally antithetical to each other, right? If people don't trust stepping foot into your clinic, how is expanding the hours in the clinic or changing the doctors in the clinic going to make a difference? And yet we say that kind of stuff all the time. And so my sort of point is from an equity perspective is, if you really take as fact that 20 to 40% of Americans, working Americans don't have a PCP, that you know millions of us live in health professional shortage areas, the moment that you have your innovation start in a clinic, right off the bat, you've lost 20, 30, 40% of the population. So from an equity perspective, distributed becomes an imperative. Particularly yeah. if we're in the land of Medicaid. Absolutely. And, and that's part of another benefit, right? I talked about community care, but you see what's happening with the vaccine rollout and it just gets me so excited. You know, we're literally going household to household now giving people the vaccine, right? We, we're going to football stadiums and churches. Like you talk about meeting people where they are and you talk about leveraging, trusting relationships. I mean, we're actually doing it. But now I think the question is, wow, should we be doing that for diabetes? Should we be doing that for colon cancer screening? Because by and large, if you look at most clinics, like my clinic, every two years, they'll do a colon cancer screening sort of initiative. But guess what they do? They create a little button in the EHR that says this person needs colon cancer screening. And that's great. But if you zoom out, guess what? That button is only going to help people who have a doctor, know how to schedule an appointment to see the doctor, go to the doctor, can afford to pay for a doctor, can afford to take a day off to see the doctor. The moment your innovation requires that, you've already lost. Because the problem really is out there for people who don't have any access or who aren't accessing the system. Is your vision one that is more paternalistic in nature? We're going to help guide people. We're going to help push out the right care that we know is good for them. Or is the vision one that's a little bit more self-service, let them draw on the best practices, let them get the home testing kits that they need? How do you see that unfolding? That's a really tough question. I, I think the answer has to be bespoke. Right. I mean, I think you know, we're talking about certain conditions and you're talking about certain populations. I think self-service makes a ton of sense. Like imagine if every time a woman wanted to see if she was pregnant, she had to go see a doctor. <laughs> imagine what would that mean? I mean, how many people would not find out till later in pregnancy? How many people would have complications of pregnancy, et cetera? Right. And so there's clearly communities and there's clearly conditions where you want to enable self-service. At the same time, when you look at people like a classic example, someone who leaves the hospital and is, is having difficulty breathing and has been in the hospital for two weeks, that is not a consumer. That is not someone that's going to shop around for their CPAP machine or their oxygen level. And so I think what we have to move to is we really have to move to what I call personalized healthcare delivery. So just like personalized medicine is saying, look, we're going to match a therapeutic to your genome. Similarly, we have to match the delivery model to the condition in the population. I think so often we talk about these things, oh yeah, well, is virtual good? Well, well for who, for what? Is in-person good? For who, for what? Like, I think we have to really get a lot more granular and start talking about the very specific sort of phenotype, if you would, that we're talking about. And then 
that question becomes, I think, um, more relevant to answer. So one of the things that the crisis has done is sort of exposed the fragility of the system, mm. um, particularly when the care is so clinic and hospital focused. Do you think that as the world becomes, and hopefully in this optimistic vision of the future you're painting, you know, as it becomes more mobile, as it becomes more decentralized, does it also become more resilient? No, it's a brilliant insight. And absolutely. I mean, I think of it as classically like the eggs in the basket. If the basket breaks, all the eggs break. I think that's exactly what we saw. If care is concentrated in the hospital and that hospital is overrun because of a pandemic, guess what? Care drops, care falls off. But if care is happening in a hundred different homes and a hundred different community centers, it becomes a lot more uh, resilient. And by the way, that's not just true for pandemics, right? Like you talk about flooding, you talk about the fires that happened in California last year, and we lost the hospital during that time, right? Like the need for us to become resilient, unfortunately, you talk about um, security breaches and privacy uh, uh, issues on, on data security, right? For all of those reasons, I think it's going to be really important for us to truly build resilience into the system. Uh, and this is, by the way, one of my concerns about, you know, there's all this great work happening to prevent the next pandemic. But I think that what I'm worried about is that we're just going to attack it like a vertical problem versus saying, how do we make the system itself more resilient? You know what I'm saying? Because there's a finite amount of resources. There's things we can do to improve healthcare. There's things we can do to prevent the next pandemic. Let's look at that Venn diagram, that overlap. What are the things that are going to you know, help us in both contexts? And I think the overlap is way, way bigger than we think it is. I, I sure hope you're right. And, and- when you think about Accolade, uh, your your current employers, you think about them. What role will they have in this? Yeah, I think. I mean, <laughs> I think a huge role, right? I mean, I think that part of what we need to get to is we need to figure out a way that, regardless of where people are on the go in the community at home, we need to find a way to not just deliver discrete services to them, but actually improve their health and be accountable to improving their health. And I think what that's going to do is that's going to require a whole new category of service delivery companies or partners or organizations who really make that possible. Because I think the reality is like, look, as someone that practices primary care, just me delivering care virtually, that's great. And that's accessible, but it's not going to improve outcomes. What's going to improve outcomes is taking into account that person's whole journey whether that's online, offline, that's whether it's in clinic or the 5,000 hours a year they spend at home. And that's going to require a really different kind of actor in the system that I don't believe exists today. And I th- We've seen an explosion of point solutions servicing large employers of every different program under the sun and a real challenge of fragmentation and a challenge of needing to integrate that across all that fragmentation. That's what you're talking about. We need someone who can weave together those pieces and make sure that people are seeing the full journey. Absolutely. Yeah, that's exactly what. And then the personalization thing. A lot of these interventions are great if you target them at exactly the people that need them. The moment you start giving them to a bunch of other people, you start to dilute the value. So like a good example I give is take someone whose diabetes is not controlled. Maybe there's three archetypes. There's one person whose diabetes is not controlled because they just can't afford their medication. There's another person whose diabetes is not controlled because they're severely depressed. And they have someone whose diabetes is not controlled because they just haven't built the medication taking habits and sort of self-checking habits that they need. What those three people need is completely different. 
But if you look at a point solution, like let's take a, like a Lavongo type of solution, it serves that third person extremely well, but it doesn't do anything for the first or the second. And so what happens is you apply as an employer that same solution to everybody with diabetes. And suddenly you've diluted the value of it because you're giving someone a service that doesn't really solve the core underlying issue that they have. And I think that's a really big challenge. And wouldn't the health plan say this is their job? Yeah, I think to a degree they would. Although it's interesting, we're seeing a lot of them really drawn to working with us at Accolade because they see that as really different from what they do today. You know, what they do today is they adjudicate claims, they manage a physician network, which is really, really hard and complex to do. But this whole idea of how do you look at all these digital health vendors and figure out which ones have clinical value? How do you get data from them? Like that's a totally new muscle. So you're right. Some of them have the ambition to do that. Others are looking at it just like employers are saying, this is overwhelming. And is there someone else who can help aggregate this for us? That's great. And I know to change gears a little bit and think, we ask this of all our guests trying to do, but if you had all the time, money and resources in the world to fix healthcare, what would you do? Oh man, I didn't know that question was coming. You know, I, I think, so I've been really inspired by the pandemic in some ways. One of the things I've been inspired by is, you remember back in December, January, we had the vaccine, but none of it was getting delivered. The administration stood up there and said, look, by this date, we want this many vaccines to be up. And I think that was a catalytic moment because what it did was that clear vision got my clinic, this little safety net clinic, hospitals, pharma, companies like Accolade, right? All of them aligned on this is the go-get. This is the vision we have to achieve. And it unleashed an incredible amount of collaboration and innovation to do that. I think my magic one would be, and this is why I wrote the book, honestly, is that we don't have a shared vision for what is supposed to happen for that parent on a Saturday night whose kid is not feeling well. If you ask people, what's your vision for healthcare? They might say, well, Medicare for all or universal this or you know, antitrust or value-based care, but that's not actually telling you the vision for the experience of how it's supposed to work for a sick child or for a family member. And I think my magic wand or my, you know, the thing I'd love to do is if we could create that shared vision, I believe that all this innovation and, and capacity we have would be directed toward actually building that vision. But right now it feels like 10,000 mutants, right? There's innovation coming out of the wazoo, but like, is it really serving some overarching goal that then is part of an overarching vision? I don't think so. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much. That's Dr. Shantanu Nundi, Chief Medical Officer of Accolade. The Oliver Wyman Health Podcast is brought to you by the global management consulting firm, Oliver Wyman. For more insights on the business of transforming healthcare, visit our online publication at health.oliverwyman.com. On behalf of everyone who made this episode possible, thank you for listening.